Well, welcome, King of Kings. What a great opportunity to worship the Lord together tonight. Wasn't that great? I really appreciate these times that the Lord gives to us. It's great to see your faces. King of Kings family, welcome back home. We are honored to be able to worship together with you. And uh, we also want to welcome our friends from around the world that are joining us. 21 different countries are with us tonight. We want to welcome you guys. Welcome to Jerusalem. Thanks for coming all the way here to be with us tonight. And isn't it a special opportunity to take of the Lord's Supper together? I really appreciate that. So thank you, Pastor Vaco and Tyro and uh, our First Encounters team who served the Lord's Supper and came and collected the Lord's tithes and uh, an amazing team that uh, we get to serve and work together with. So thank you to all those guys and everybody behind the scenes that's doing all the work to make all of this happen. Well, if you were paying attention this last week, we hosted two different seminars. The Israel Academy of Ministry hosted two different seminars, one on Wednesday night. Our friend Jeff Leitz came and spoke to us about personal financial freedom. And then on uh, Friday, uh, another friend, Yael Barshov, came and did an amazing presentation on just some practical things to do to be, be prepared for any kind of crisis. Both of those classes were recorded, and we're going to be posting those on our Israel Academy of Ministry website in the coming days, coming weeks. We will make you aware of that. And there are a few other courses and classes there as well that we know that you'll be interested in. And so as soon as we get those prepared and up onto the website, we will let you know about them. We will invite you to come and uh, take a peek at those and uh, download them, share them with friends as well. And then we, uh, looking forward, we're getting ready to step into the fall months. And uh, we are excited about that. But we're really excited that this week, Pastor Chad and Rebecca and the family come back from their vacation. They're going to be with us Thursday or Friday of this week, and we're excited. And that means that Pastor Chad will be back here on Sunday night. We're going to start a whole new series uh, focused around the holidays. So put that on your calendar. But we want you to really put on your calendar. Look forward to Sunday, July, excuse me, August, September, <laughs> I have to go through the whole calendar. A good thing I didn't start in January, right? Uh, September 24th is Erev Yom Kippur. And uh, that is going to be the beginning of Kippur. And so we are going to host our normal 5 p.m. service, scooting it back to 10 a.m. So put that in your calendars so that you don't forget and show up at 5, though it'd be really hard to show up at 5 with nothing running. But just put that in your calendars. Please spread the word around. We'll be uh, preparing our hearts for the Kippur holidays, the Shabbat, and uh, we'll meet at 10 o'clock in the morning. We're looking forward to that. So we will continue to announce that as we get closer. So have you ever been in a meeting or in a conversation and people are visiting, talking about different things, and suddenly you hear something that you all of a sudden you realize you should know this, but you don't know it. And suddenly you kind of are embarrassed that you didn't know it, or you're kind of shocked that the information that just came through was stuff that you hadn't already grasped a hold of. Has that ever happened to you? This happened to me just a couple of months ago. I was invited to a small meeting. Uh, a, A group of educators from the United States 
from a believing college were here, and they wanted to meet with just a few ministries and kind of hear what is God doing in Israel. So I got to represent King of Kings. And one of the other ministries that was there began to share what they're doing. And I had heard of the ministry, and I knew what they were doing. I could have told you the ministry and told you what they were doing, but I didn't know the details. And, and that's what caught me off guard. So as this woman starts to share their ministry, they are working on the streets of Tel Aviv, and they're working with prostitutes on the streets of Tel Aviv. And uh, she began to describe the realities of this situation in this neighborhood that they're in is probably one of the toughest neighborhoods in all of Israel, probably, for sure, in Tel Aviv. Lots of gangs and, and drug uh, dealings and brothels and uh, crime is out of the sky. And this is where they're doing their, this ministry to prostitutes. And then she began to describe the women that they're working with working to serve. And this was the part that caught me off guard. I didn't really realize the reality of their lifestyle. And she began to describe these women, the majority of them come from uh, some kind of abuse, whether it's uh, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, or all of the above. And they're, they're broken. They come from broken lives, broken homes, and they're abandoned by their culture, by their family, their society. And they're, they're there living on the streets of, of Tel Aviv in a, a lifestyle of prostitution out of desperation. Not one of them has chosen that lifestyle. They're there because there's no place else for them to go. And as she described this, that they are the bottom of the bottom. There's no lower than you can go than that. And I learned that morning that until just a few years ago, Israel, uh, prostitution was legal in Israel. Some of you probably already knew that, but that was where I was biting my tongue. I didn't know that. I was a little bit shocked. And because this has been legal, it created an environment where these women are literally overlooked. They're, they're nothing. They're no ones. Uh, they're, they're less than property. Uh, nobody's watching out for them. Nobody's taking care of them. And so the ministry has come in and they've created a, a salon sort of a setting for them, a safe place where they can come and get hot meals and drinks and tea and uh, a place where they can shower and change their clothes and sleep and rest if they need to. And then they, the, the salon kind of ministers to them by giving them manicures and pedicures and allowing them to have their hair cut or colored or, and they just take care of them, trying to just show them love by meeting the, the simple basic needs that we all have as human beings and giving them a, a bit of dignity and the hope behind everything that they're doing is that they would be able to minister to these women and give them a place where they could find some rehabilitation where they would be willing to find a, a different lifestyle. And a few of the women, they've actually given them a different, a whole different life. And some of them have come to even know the Lord and step into an eternal life with the Lord. <clears throat> In many ways, this hopeless reality, this is what I felt as I left the room that morning, this hopeless reality, the realities that make up the dead end life of a prostitute are some of the same realities, some of the same things that faced the character that we're gonna be talking about tonight. 
She also experienced and lived in the same kinds of situation as these women on the streets in Tel Aviv. As you know, if you've been with us over the summer, we've been looking at a series that we've called Deconstructing God, God's True Character. And our goal has been to look at what is the true character of God. And to help us do that, we've been looking at different characters in the Bible and examining their lives and their own uh, struggles with faith. And as they've walked with the Lord, their trials, and, and from that, how they've grown in their understanding and relationship with God. And we've looked at some amazing characters throughout the summer. I want to encourage you, if you've missed some of those or if you've never even heard the whole series, it's on our archives. And I want to encourage you to go and pick those out. Some of those have been some amazing truths, amazing lessons for us. But tonight, uh, we're going to conclude the series by looking at uh, a character that I've been looking forward to from the beginning of the series. I couldn't wait till we got to this character. I'm excited about her, and I was excited to study her and find out some some nuggets of truth that God has for us there. For one, she's a woman, and for me, this is important because I feel like we don't give women enough airtime, and so this is exciting for me just because she's a woman, but I I love what the Bible does, constantly uh, lifting up the, the... and elevating for us the, the standard through women, God's standard through women, allowing us to see uh, godly women and women with virtue and leaders and women who God loves and uses. And tonight's character fits that same pattern, that same design. Rahab's story begins for us on the pages of the book of Joshua, as God is bringing the children of Israel up out of Egypt and into their promised land, but her story spreads all throughout the Bible, which I find interesting, into the new covenant as an example of faith, an example of righteousness and godly character. We first meet Rahab in chapter two of Joshua, and I'm not gonna rehearse the whole story. I wish we had time to to read the entire thing and dissect it, but we won't have the time to do that tonight. So I'm just gonna quickly review. Most of us know this story. Israel and Joshua are getting ready to step into the promised land. And he sends, Joshua sends two spies into the land to kind of scope it out, find out what's going on there, especially the city of Jericho. Jericho is gonna be their first offensive attack. So the two spies end up in Jericho and they end up lodging in Rahab's house. Now the Bible describes Rahab to us as a harlot or a prostitute, but she probably was also running some sort of an inn where people could stay, travelers could stay on their way back and forth. And so the travelers, the two spies, end up in her house. They probably were using that house also as a place to gather information. In any case, the king of Jericho finds out that they're there. So he sends his soldiers to go grab the man. And Rahab lies. Nope, they're not here. She hides them. They've gone on their way. You need to go now, find them, because they've, they've already left. So the men take off to go find them. The, the spies. And Rahab goes up to the two spies and she, she begins to work out a deal with them. And she says, look, my life, my family's life, for your life and for the secrecy of what is happening in this situation. And then she makes this statement of faith that we know that God has given you this city and your God is God of heaven and earth. So the spies agree to this deal that she works out with them. 
and they make a, an oath or a covenant with her, stating that they will let her family and all of her, her and her family and everybody that she brings into her home stay alive as long as they gather inside of the home and then marking the house with a red rope that hangs from the window so that as Israel comes in to attack, they'll know that this is the place, this is the family that we don't kill. These are the ones that we're going to allow to stay alive. So all of those family members have to be inside. And if they're not, they will die because they're not inside that safe place. The spies finally escape. They make it back to Joshua and they tell him what's going on in Jericho. And a few days later, a few weeks later, Israel finally attacks Jericho. And Joshua keeps his covenant, keeps the oath that Israel has made with Rahab and Rahab's life and the life of her family are saved. And they bring her out because of her acts of faith, of extending help and protection to the spies and to Israel. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at this process that takes place in our lives that we have been using the word deconstruction to describe. You could use lots of different words. You could use the word sanctification or the testing of our faith. In any case, we have been describing it as deconstruction because of the way it happens in our lives as this God-initiated process where God comes to us out of love for us and he begins to remove or tear down or deconstruct those things that are incorrect in our thinking or our theology or our understanding and at the same time uh, implanting and, and placing in, in their place the true character of who he is, truths about who God is so that we ha have a greater understanding and truth of who he is. And in creating an environment as he does this where we can step into relationship with God, where we can know him better, not just know more information about him, but where we can know him because we have greater, deeper intimacy with him. So he's removing the old and the bad and giving us a greater picture of who he is at the same time creating a, a soft landing environment where we can grow in our relationship with him. Most of the characters that we have looked at over the summer have had moments of deconstruction that are tumultuous and uh, trialing. And we've seen that everywhere from Job to Abraham. And then last week, Pastor Wayne did an amazing job looking at Peter. And all of these characters that we've looked at this summer have had dramatic upheavals in their lives. And this is what we've focused on. But Rahab's story is different. She doesn't have a dramatic upheaval other than the attack of Israel coming against Jericho. But it's still the same process. There's still this knowing of God that takes place in her life as God deconstructs in her life. It doesn't happen in a moment. Rather, it happens over a long period of time as she is slowly introduced to who God is, God introducing himself, his character and his truth and his strength and his power, all the while in her heart challenging and exposing the confusing and destructive godless ideas and beliefs that she had grown up with in her culture, painting a new picture 
of who he was on the canvas of her heart, painting a picture for the first time of who he is on the canvas of her heart, a better picture than any of her realities would have ever allowed her to have. God filling her with a hope for a better life, a different kind of life, a life that mattered and a life that had meaning and purpose. And then she meets the spies. They actually come into her house, the spies of the people of God. And now it's all real. This is what I mean. Listen to how Rahab describes to the spies her understanding of who God is. She says in chapter 2, I know that the Lord has given you this land. She knows the Lord. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came up out of Egypt and and what you did to Sihon and to Og, the two kings of the Amorites on the east of Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. You can hear the the, uh, unimaginable in her voice. When we heard it, she says, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. And then she makes this amazing statement for the Lord, your God is God in heaven and on earth. What an amazing confession. Think about that for a moment and a a confession of faith in the one true God by a woman, a Gentile woman who'd never heard about God, didn't know God. She'd never seen or experienced God. She'd never seen the pillar of fire or heard his voice from the mountaintop like they had. And yet, she had been studying and learning about and listening to stories about this God for years. Imagine with me for just a few moments what it must have been like living in Jericho, the Canaanite family sitting around the table at night, gathering around the watering well in the town, neighbors visiting with neighbors, as news of the exodus from Egypt hits the town. The total destruction of the most powerful army on earth. That had to shake them. Imagine the conversations. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And then that wasn't enough. The people of God now walk through the massive Red Sea. It splits open. And they walk through on dry ground? Impossible. It's never happened. And now the enemies of Israel are completely destroyed. It's never happened. And news then continues to trickle in on the CCNN Camel Caravan News Network over the next 40 years worth of time. Piece by piece, the wanderings of the children of Israel in the desert. What? Water gushing out of rocks? Food provided for them every single day. All they have to do is just go out and pick it up. A pillar of fire for God's people. 
lighting up the darkness of the night, keeping them warm, protecting them from their enemies. A cloud that guides them, a cloud that protects them from the rays of the sun. Their shoes never have holes in them. Their clothes never wear out. And then the tremendous set of laws and rules that this God has given to his people to follow. Nothing like that ever existed before. God then disciplining his people as they wander through the wilderness for 40 years and the nations surrounding them hear every single story. And now this, the two mighty Amorite kings and nations are completely wiped out, nothing left. And Rahab is convinced. For years, Rahab had heard the unimaginable, the unbelievable, the legendary deeds of the Lord God Almighty, the Most High God, the God of Israel. As he filled her heart, bit by bit, piece by piece, piling up magnificent, beautiful stones of truth about who he is, unlike anything she'd ever heard before, filling her heart up until the truth of God in her heart far outweighs the lies of the culture that she grew up in. God gently and relentlessly pursuing her heart until one night when she finally meets some of God's people in person, standing in her living room. And now her faith in their God propels Rahab to put everything that she has on the line in faith that there's got to be a better way of life, in faith that there's something, something that's worth living for, in faith that there's hope for a better future. Finally, she can be set free from this dead end life that she's in. Rahab in faith acts as she quickly hides the spies and she lies to the soldiers and to the king and she proclaims God's power and his might to the spies as she steps into the role of an of a intercessor for her family and for her own life, taking gigantic steps of faith to secure her security and their security. She says in chapter 2 and verse 12, now then, please, speaking to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save all of us from death. See, Rahab's faith has been building up over a long period of time, a faith that gives her a deep trust in God, that gives her a deep respect and awe of God, that gives her a fear of the king of kings rather than a fear of the king of Jericho. God has won her heart. Her decision to help the spies wasn't a last-minute 
plea. Oh, please save my life. Save my life. It's not that at all. She made the decision a long, long time ago. And now this is just the next natural step in getting close to this God that she's been hearing about. She makes an oath, a covenant with the spies, and they decide to hang a scarlet red rope from her window, a red rope signaling that everyone that was in Rahab's house would be safe from the impending destruction that was coming to Jericho. But the red rope also symbolized Rahab's faith, a faith in a God that she couldn't see. Imagine for a moment the, the confidence, the strength that this red rope gave to Rahab and to her family. Every time they looked out that window for days, for weeks, until Israel finally attacked Jericho, the hope that that red rope gave to them. But the real power of Rahab's story comes to us because of who she is. See, if we don't grasp that reality that Rahab was a prostitute, we're going to miss the whole point why this story is in God's word. I think many times, in many ways, just like I softened up in my mind what the lifestyle of a prostitute in Tel Aviv was like, I think in many ways we have colored the, and disaffected what Rahab's life was like in our minds and in our theology. We, we paint her as a godly woman, a woman of faith. And that is true, but we have to understand that's not where she started. We have to understand the whole point that God's trying to make with this story. And it requires us to understand who she was when God came to her. That Rahab was a Gentile she wasn't a part of the family of God. She was a woman from a pagan culture, a culture that worshiped false gods, whose life was anything but ideal, anything but good. She was selling herself every day just to stay alive, to provide for her family like the women on the streets in Tel Aviv, this lifestyle was not her choice. She was there because of the desperation she was in, because of the life's workings out. This is where she landed, but she didn't choose to be there. She was also probably seen, just like the prostitutes in Tel Aviv, as a nothing, as a nobody, as a less than piece of property, an object for the use and the needs of others. And this is the culture that she'd grown up in. This is how they viewed and treated all of their people. A culture of people that God had slated for total destruction because of their treatment of people, because they were sacrificing their children to idols. They were worshiping idols and false gods and practicing black magic and witchcraft culture that had turned away from everything that God had offered to them, turned away from anything and everything that was God. And Rahab's life 
was a dead end life. It was empty, it was void, broken, and it was hopeless. And this is what God wants us to see in the pages of the Bible. She had no future. She had no hope. There was absolutely nothing for her to live for except to stay alive. That is, until she began to hear about the one true God, now all of a sudden, there might be something that's worth living for. And then over 40 years of life, God deconstructs her heart. The stories filtering in about a God who actually cares about and loves his people, about a God who actually has power to destroy whole armies and nations, all the while protecting his own people and, and blessing them and blessing their lives with abundance, with hope and with joy, with a purpose and with a future. And then unlike all of the people around her who heard the exact same stories, Rahab grabs a hold of those truths in faith, hoping for something better like a life rope thrown to a sinking person, Rahab grabs a hold of these stories and begins to believe in this God that she can't see with her eyes. As her faith, that substance of things that she hoped for, things that she had hoped for her entire life, but without any physical evidence to prove that they were real, she begins to build a faith in her heart and believing in this God that she couldn't see. And this is what God wants us to see. In fact, her faith is so remarkable that Rahab's life, this broken, pagan, prostitute woman, actually makes it into Hebrews' hall of faith in chapter 11 in the New Covenant. Hebrews describes Rahab this way, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with all those who were disobedient. They heard the same stories and they rejected God. Rahab reached out and grabbed a hold of God in faith. By the way, Rahab is only one of two women that appear in that long list of Hall of Faithers. But here's the real clincher. The really amazing thing about Rahab is this. God not only saves this Gentile prostitute woman, and we're using those words over and over again on purpose to make the point. This is the point that God wants us to see. He not only saves this Gentile prostitute woman, filling her with faith and saving her life and saving her family's life from the destruction that takes place at Jericho as if this would have been enough, right? But then he weaves this woman gracefully and graciously into his chosen people, his family, Israel. She marries a man named Salmon. Uh, many scholars speculate and, and there's an idea that it might be 
he might have been one of the spies that came to her house, but she, she marries this man, Salmon, and she becomes a wife, and then she becomes a mother. She gives birth to Boaz, the future husband of a woman named Ruth, a Moabite. And then if that isn't enough, Ruth marries Boaz, and they have a child named Obed. Obed has a child named Jesse, Jesse gives birth to King David. See, Rahab, a Gentile prostitute woman, God sets in as the great-great-grandmother of one of, the, one of the greatest kings of Israel, for sure, and maybe one of the greatest kings ever on the earth. And Rahab is his great-great-grandmother. But more astonishing than all of that, we read in Matthew chapter 1 the, the importance of this family line as Boaz and Ruth have Obed and Obed has Jesse and, and then to David. And then Matthew continues 14 more generations after King David all the way down to Yeshua, God's Messiah and our Savior. And it all started way back in a little town called Jericho when a young prostitute, a woman whose life amounted to nothing, a piece of property, somebody that's overlooked and uh, vulnerable and exposed begins to believe, begins to grab a hold of each of those God stories like a rope of salvation holding on with everything that she has until the day she finally hangs that red rope of faith from her window, an expression of her faith in a God that she can't see, a symbol of her freedom, a symbol of her salvation, a symbol of a life of promise and of hope. James describes Rahab's faith as an act of righteousness in James chapter 2, he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not only by their faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? See, Rahab's faith and her actions speak loud to us today. Her small seed of faith transformed her life forever, transformed her family's life, propelling her into relationship with a God, the God of creation, her creator, giving her life meaning, giving her life purpose, giving her something to live for, giving her a, a future, and giving her a hope. And all of that was because of this small seed of faith. See, the enemy wants to steal people's futures. When he steals a person's future, he steals their hope. We see it all around us today, men and women living hopeless lives because they've lost their futures. There's nothing to live for. Just like Rahab and the women living on the streets in Tel Aviv, there was nothing. They have nothing to live for. 
There's no hope. They don't have a future. The number of people suffering mental diseases has risen to an all-time high in the world around us because they don't have a hope. They don't have a future. The number of suicides is at an all-time high ever on the face of the earth because people have lost their hope. The enemy is trying to get us to believe that we don't have anything to live for. We don't have a future, so we don't have a hope. But Rahab's story shows us, her story inspires us that our faith in something that we can't see is like that small seed, that key that unlocks God's futures for us and gives our life a hope and a purpose. Our faith propels us into the future that God has purposed for each one of our lives. Our small-sized, seed-sized faith launches us into God's story. Just like it did for Rahab. She became part of God's story of redemption, God's story of life giving to all of mankind. And he intertwines our lives in his story, his story, in the history that he's writing, throwing our lives onto the pages of the Bible. Listen to how Malachi describes this. Malachi verse, chapter 3, verse 16. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened, and he heard. And a scroll of remembrance, God pops open his scroll, scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Did you know that today your name is being written in God's continued hall of faithers? Chapter 11 of Hebrews is just a glimpse. Your name is being written in there. My name is hopefully being written in there because of our acts of faith. God continues and he says, on the day when I act, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And here's the thing, we're gonna end with this tonight. God still has so much in front of us, so many things that we can't even comprehend today. We can't see them today. Our, rich, our future is rich that God has in front of us but we can't see it yet. And the enemy wants to steal it away from us. But here's the thing, our lives have been brought to this place, to this time in history for a reason, for a purpose and for a plan. Just like Rahab's life seemingly didn't have any hope, any promise, any future, and yet God used her life to create the family line of the Messiah. God's salvation for all mankind. 
how much does he still want to do in you? How much does he still want to do through you? Things that you can't even imagine yet, you can't see them yet, but they exist. And it's that small seed of faith that puts you in line, that puts me in line with God's purposes and with God's plans. Believing in something that we can't see with our eyes and believing in something that we can't grab a hold of with our hands. Will you believe God for that today? Are you courageous enough to believe God for something that you can't see, that you can't grab a hold of? That's what Rahab's story tells us. And I want to encourage us today to grab a hold of that red rope of faith and to believe God for something that today seems impossible to you. To believe God for that thing that is just right outside of your reach. That thing that God has promised you. Grab a hold of that red rope of faith and let God do the work in you and through you and let him continue to write your name on his scrolls until he calls us into eternity with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. Yeah, God, thank you. Thank you for Rahab's story. Thank you for allowing us to see our story in her story. That when we didn't have a hope, when we didn't have a life, we didn't have a future, you continued to pursue our hearts. You've continued to remove false pictures of who you are that we've built up to place in our hearts those true pictures, truths of who you are so that we could know you more. Now, God, I would just ask that you would strengthen our spirits, give us the courage to grab a hold of you, that red rope of faith, and to believe you for something that seems impossible to us today. To believe you for things in our lives that seem like they could never happen. Fill your people with faith today, Father. Strengthen our faith. Give us just that seed of faith to be able to believe in something that we can't see with our eyes. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Lord bless you. I want to encourage you to keep asking God to give you that faith. Because the faith is what's going to give us the future and the hope. Amen. Lord bless you.